as we consider this morning the ninth commandment of Exodus 20, verse 16, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. We turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I was going to begin reading at verse 11. We're going to read the entire chapter this morning. The opening verses also are pertinent. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we, be, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that she henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that she put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, 
and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not, let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. The Heidelberg Catechism's exposition of the Ninth Commandment is found in Lord's Day 43. With its single question and answer 112, what is required in the Ninth Commandment? That I bear false witness against no man, nor falsify any man's word that I be no backbiter nor slanderer, that I do not judge nor join in condemning any man rashly or unheard, but that I avoid all sorts of lies and deceit as the proper works of the devil, unless I would bring down upon me the heavy wrath of God. Likewise, that in judgment and all other dealings I love the truth, speak it uprightly, and confess it, also that I defend and promote as much as I am able the honor and good character of my neighbor. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, There is probably no commandment that more readily brings us under condemnation than the commandment we consider this morning. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Our Heidelberg Catechism, as it is known to do, presses this commandment upon each of us personally. It compels us, if we are to make this confession our own, and we must, it compels us in answering the question, what is required in the Ninth Commandment, to answer that I bear false witness against no man, nor falsify any man's words, that I be no backbiter, nor slanderer, that I do not judge 
nor join in condemning any man rashly or unheard, but that I avoid all sorts of lies and deceits as the proper works of the devil, unless I would bring upon me the heavy wrath of God. But the Catechism doesn't stop there. It doesn't simply have us confess what the Ninth Commandment forbids. It also has us confess what it requires of us. Namely, that in judgment and all other dealings, I love the truth, speak it uprightly, and confess it. Also, that I defend and promote as much as I am able the honor and good character of my neighbor. It is certainly easy with what we face these days to bemoan ourselves as victims of this despicable sin. We know what it is to have our words falsified, to be slandered, to find ourselves judged in the worst possible light, to have our words evil spoken of. We might like to say this morning, I wish that those who have spoken evil against me could hear these words. But we must not do that. This commandment comes with application to you as it does to me. The Word of God comes to us, to each of us this morning, in such a way as if you and I were alone with our Heavenly Father. He's speaking this Word to you, as He is to me. And He does so for one thing, to painfully administer to us the truth that gives us to see the vileness of our own sinful nature, that we might humble ourselves in repentance before the holiness of God. But he would have us see our sin that we also know the necessity not only, but the wonder of his grace in delivering us from the bondage of this sin through Jesus Christ the righteous. This commandment also comes to us who've been delivered from the bondage of sin and death by the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Jesus Christ. So God would also apply this word to us that we fight all our sinful speaking and be sanctified in all that we say. That's how God would have us express our gratitude to him, by speaking the truth in love. As we stand before the ninth commandment this morning, I call your attention to the theme, Christian speech, speaking the truth in love we have to notice the underlying principle, secondly, the gross violation, and finally, the necessary calling 
The underlying principle of the ninth commandment is found in God himself who has given us this commandment. And that underlying principle is that God is truth. He knows truth, to be sure. He determines truth. But more, the Bible reveals God is truth. There is no falsehood whatsoever in him. Hebrews 6 verse 18 says it is impossible for God to lie. He sent his son into the world who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son is the spirit of truth. And therefore Jesus, in his high priestly prayer recorded in John 17, prayed to his Father in verse 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The truth of God, as you realize, is revealed in the word, and essentially the word become flesh as those who belong to him, and therefore who are not only loved by him, but who are called to love him. We are taught in 1 Corinthians 13 that love rejoices in the truth. The truth revealed by God must be very important to us. It's the truth that binds us together as the people of God. We want to know God's truth. We want to know God's truth because we are to speak to God and about Him in harmony with what He has revealed concerning Himself and His perfect works. According to 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 10, love of the truth is an inseparable characteristic of those who are saved. And if you look at at other references in the Bible concerning truth, you find that the children of God love the truth, love one another in the truth, and walk in the truth. That deserves emphasis among us. Loving the truth is not just an intellectual pursuit of what the Bible teaches. It is also a life that bears witness to that truth and a tongue used in harmony with that truth. So that, as we have heard from 1 John 2 verse 4, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. In fact, In Romans chapter 2, the fiercest judgments are pronounced upon them that are contentious and do not obey the truth. The truth is to be obeyed. And that is so 
because Jesus' name is inseparable from the truth that he proclaimed. When the inspired Apostle Peter begins his second chapter of his second epistle, warning against false teachers who bring upon themselves swift destruction, the urgency of his warning for the church is found in verse 2. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And so the name of Christ is defiled. His reputation is defiled by those who claim association with him and do not speak or walk in harmony with his troop. But you see, that principle also has application with relationship to the neighbor. We are to be those who not only speak the truth, but who walk in truth when it comes to our neighbor. And that means positively that I defend and promote as much as I am able the honor and good character of my neighbor. Now we'll consider a little later what that means, but first we must understand that the ninth commandment recognizes the neighbor has a name that's inseparable from his reputation. That reputation might have to do with his ability, might have to do with the way he carries out his business. That reputation might have to do with his moral character, especially in the various relationships of life. He might be known as a good man or a bad man, one who treats people well, or one who is a monster in his family relationships or in how he treats his fellow employees, or to mention a couple examples. Now, Scripture teaches that we must value our name and reputation. That's proper. Proverbs 22, verse 1, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and a loving favor rather than silver and gold. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 1 puts it this way, A good name is better than precious ointment. you realize that elders are to have a good reputation among those who are outside the church. Stands to reason, then, that they ought to have a good reputation in the church among those whom they serve. But that's true for all who call themselves Christian. God himself seeks and maintains his own honor. He expects those who claim his name in Christ to uphold that honor. We are to desire a good name for God's sake. Don't overlook that emphasis. For God's sake. You know that we are all too readily more concerned about appearance than reality. 
We're more concerned about what others think of us than what we are to God. And we can easily focus on fitting into certain human standards and customs than the standards that are truly important. God's standards and who we are in Christ. So although there is a time to defend ourselves against evil speaking, particularly when that evil speaking or slander reflects upon the God whom we serve, far better that we remember what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, when he said, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. He that judgeth me is the Lord. If we are not vindicated by God himself over against those who speak evil of us, we have no defense. But when we know that the Lord judges us faithful, then we also know that if he doesn't vindicate us today, he will in the judgment. But that same principle of valuing our name and reputation compels us to understand the importance of the neighbor's name and reputation. To love the neighbor is also to seek his welfare. To that end, we may say that the ninth commandment is positively expressed in the words of of Ephesians 4, verse 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Now let's understand. That which is good to the use of edifying is that which arises out of the truth. Rises out of love for God. It's love, therefore, that hates the lie. And for that reason, the ninth commandment requires that I bear false witness against no man, nor falsify any man's word, that I be no backbiter nor slanderer, that I do not judge nor join in condemning any man rashly or unheard, but that I avoid all sorts of lies and deceit as the proper works of the devil, unless I would bring down upon me the heavy wrath of God. Obviously, the ninth commandment forbids the lie. We may not willfully distort the truth. Proverbs 19, verse 5, says, A false witness shall not be unpunished. And he that speaketh lies shall not escape. For emphasis, the same truth is is stated in, in verse 9. A false witness shall not be unpunished, and he that speaketh lies shall perish. One of the most serious matters that we parents deal with 
is when our children are caught lying. They don't have to be taught how to lie any more than you and I were taught how to lie. The ability to lie is deeply ingrained in our fallen human nature. The motives for lying can differ. Some lie for personal advantage, some lie to cover up, some lie for revenge to make others look bad. But when our children are caught lying, they must be dealt with firmly. They have to realize that, that lying is a sin, the nature of which belongs to Satan himself, the father of lies. And that no liar shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's the seriousness of this sin. Proverbs 12, verse 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. But they that deal truly are his delight. And this is the reminder of how much we need Jesus and the cleansing of his precious blood. His righteousness alone saves us because he alone could bear the wrath of God for all our lying. But you recognize that the calling to speak that which edifies to speak the truth in love is grossly violated. The Catechism's exposition of the Ninth Commandment takes us far beyond the words, don't lie. How many are not the poisonous words spoken in our little Christian community? And what about in our congregation? How much gossip is there? How much slander? How much twisting of men's words is there? Has there been a searing of the conscience with these sins? When we aren't the ones spreading those poisonous words, are we all too eager to listen without questioning, let alone rebuking the one whose tongue has become an instrument of the devil? How often do we turn and walk away or stop the conversation by saying, I don't need to hear this. Or, you're speaking negatively about so-and-so. Have you spoken to him? The conversation here is out of place. And how much hasn't our use of social media contributed to the increase of this wickedness? 
The more we give place to the sins of the tongue, the more we ourselves are consumed by the lie. In the midst of his defense of the truth, as he labored with the churches in Galatia, Paul cautioned God's people in Galatians 5, verses 13 through 15. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. If we become highly critical of each other, we become open to the lies of Satan himself who is always speaking to us, engaging us by his deceitful presentation of what is acceptable, what is right. So we are warned in Proverbs 22, verse 5, thorns and snares are in the way of the froward. The froward man is one who aggressively and with bombast attacks others by twisting the truth. According to Proverbs 8, the froward mouth, along with pride and arrogancy, is hated by God. Hated by God. But back to Proverbs 22, verse 5. Thorns and snares are in the way of the froward. He that doth keep his soul shall be far from them. It seems to me, in the face of the behavior we witness lately and the attacks upon our churches, that we do well to examine ourselves. To examine ourselves as churches and search whether we ourselves have given birth to such behavior by our examples. God forbid that such be the case. But have we brought up our children, even our spiritual children, by speaking or permitting our children to speak in a way that would mark us among those with a froward mouth? Is that how we have spoken? Not only of fellow Christians, but of the neighbor, of the one whom God has placed in the pathway of our life 
perhaps in positions of authority. Teachers, ministers, elders. Have we been abusive in our speech toward our children, our spouses? We have reason to examine ourselves. From whence has this behavior risen? We have reason to pray with the psalmist in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. The tongue, as we know, is a mighty member. A fire, as James refers to it. Even a world of iniquity. Most of the time when we speak negatively of someone else, we're expressing the disposition of our heart toward them. Disposition of hatred. And then there's the warning against judging or joining and condemning any man rashly or unheard. There are those who are given to this sin. We all have a tendency to think the worst about a person when we hear something negative. I say we all have that tendency because of the pride of our own hearts. When we hear something that would put us in a better light or a better position than someone else, we can be quick to throw that person under the bus, so to speak. But some are given over to this sin. And so we read of the froward again in Proverbs 17, verse 20, He that hath a froward heart findeth no good. He can't find a place for attempting to Look at someone in a good light. Try to understand someone from a positive point of view when that person could be interpreted in such a way as to make them look bad. Contrast that to the one who loves with the love of 1 Corinthians 13. Such love vaunteth not itself, that is, doesn't foist itself forward in a self-display of rash judgment, is not puffed up, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, and recognizes, therefore, that the truth might have to be revealed by investigation and hearing two sides instead of rushing to judgment. But God mercifully calls us to repentance. 
After all, He paid the price for these sins. Not only having carried them to the cross, but having borne them Himself during His earthly sojourn. He was slandered repeatedly. He bore reproach, the weight of which you and I will never bear. But that also shows the horror of these various forms of sin against the ninth commandment. It dishonors God so greatly that it called for His eternal wrath to be emptied upon His only begotten Son. And now, having recreated us after the image of His own dear Son, He reveals Himself to us in truth, calling us to speak with purpose, with resolve, and in truth. Our speech is to be seasoned to be edifying, to be an example even to those unbelievers with whom we have contact. Our speech, you see, is to be distinctly Christian. That isn't merely a matter of knowing what not to say, of holding our tongues. That's Positively, a matter of using our speech to God's glory, loving the truth, speaking it uprightly, and confessing it. And in this world in which there is so much evil speaking, it's also a matter of defending and promoting, as much as I am able, the honor and good character of my neighbor. So we stand before the necessary calling that the Ninth Commandment presses upon us as a rule for a life of thankfulness to the God of our salvation. God works in us by His Holy Spirit in such a way that we may grow up into Him in all things. But that growth comes in the way of professing His truth. That we read in Ephesians 4, verse 15. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. That word speaking, speaking the truth in love, is a peculiar word. It's not the usual word translated speaking. In fact, it's a word that's almost impossible to translate literally except by an awkward departure from the English language. Truthing in love. That doesn't refer merely to speaking honestly or telling the truth in everyday speech, something which is also required of us. It is to profess the truth as it is in Christ, to lay hold of the truth of his doctrine, and to profess it as our own. 
we must speak the truth as it is revealed in the Scripture. And the phrase conveys the idea that we are confessing and walking in the truth. That's the church's calling. That's your calling and mine as individual believers. The church, as the body of Christ, must proclaim the truth of God and live it. The church must be seen as the living and glorious body of Christ who is truth. Which means also, of course, that you and I must profess the truth. You must confess it in the church and before the world. And that truth as it is in Jesus must adorn your life. It must adorn our tongues. So that in judgment and all other dealings, I love the truth, speak it uprightly, and confess it. But to speak the truth, you must know it. You must know it as a matter of your own personal conviction and understanding, which is to say, you must know the truth of God as God himself has spoken it in his word. First Corinthians 2, 12 and 13 Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. God's word is our guide. God's word is true. And his word is also our guide in the truth. But then there's also this that belongs to our necessary calling according to Ephesians 4 verse 15 and confirmed in verse 29, we must speak the truth in love. There is a speaking that claims to be of the truth. And that wants to claim that speaking the truth in love means speaking the truth in love for God. That's not the emphasis of this verse, as is very evident from the context. It's talking about speaking the truth in a way which is edifying, which builds those to whom we're speaking. It's a speech that does not serve to tear apart and dishonor God and his church, but to build the body of Christ and to glorify God. Where there is such speech that does not serve to build But to tear apart, there's reason for us to pause and realize the truth is not there. 
The truth of God never comes to expression that way. You parents certainly realize that you don't teach your children the truth of God while abusing them and tearing them to pieces. Nor is that acceptable behavior in Christ's church. I didn't raise my children that way. And in the four congregations I've served, I didn't teach God's people that way. We can and must address error in the church and in the broader church world. And we can and must do that while still speaking that truth in love. Our children understand this. Young people can become disillusioned when they see what claims to be truth come to expression in a way that exposes it as hypocrisy. Someone might say about me, he's old and ugly and stupid besides, probably has dementia. Even our children know that words spoken that way expose the hatred of a heart that lies outside the realm of God's truth. The love spoken of in this text is not a love that embraces false prophets and false doctrines that says we must avoid controversy, and so on. But it is the love that God has revealed toward his people in Christ. A love that's self-denying, that seeks not its own. A love that builds. A love that labors with the church in her weaknesses. It's the love that he has shed abroad in our hearts so that we experience it and taste it and live out of it. In that love, we must profess the truth. But if we are to heed this admonition, we mustn't be tossed to and fro. We must grow. And therefore, we must continue to preach and give attention to sound doctrine, the doctrine used by God and applied by his Holy Spirit to the upbuilding of the church of which Christ is the head and the life. We must face temptations and trials, but we have a mighty Savior, a compassionate friend, a powerful advocate with the Father. 
He knows your pathway, beloved. He sees your conflicts, your wind-blown appearance. And as you follow the way of his word, led by his spirit, he has promised to support you, to guide and to guard you, and finally to make you more than conquerors, to bestow upon you the crown of everlasting life. So he works in the midst of his church. Believe it. Confess it. Also for your neighbor's sake. Amen. Heavenly Father, again we grieve our sinfulness. Plead forgiveness in Christ's blood and perfect righteousness. Grant that we may live in obedience to the ninth commandment out of thankfulness for what thou hast given us in thine only begotten Son. For in his name we pray. Amen.